My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode five of season three. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Christina Patterson to the show. Christina is a writer and broadcaster and consultant who gives us a peek behind the curtain at the highly pressured and not always very nice world of the news media here in the UK. She's also talking about her wonderful book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. We cover some dark subjects in the interview, but it's actually a really uplifting conversation. One of those interviews that gives you nourishment for the soul or the human spirit, or whatever else it's called these days. Back here at 21st Century Creative Towers, now that the heavy lifting for season three of the show is done, I'm spending some more focused time on my poetry collection. I'm at the stage where it's mostly done, I'm left with the difficult bits to finish, and I'm also looking at it to see what's missing and what I can add to the poems already in place, and also what's the best running order for the poems. One discovery I made recently is a fairly obscure 17th century French poet, Antoine Girard de Saint-Amand, who is very engaging and funny. He writes about the big, important poetic subjects, things like smelly cheese and fine wine, and lazing around in bed when you really should be getting up and doing something productive. I've just translated one of his sonnets, and I may do one or two more of his poems, as he is very convivial company. I'm also translating a passage from the 16th century Portuguese poet Camoes, which is slightly more challenging than translating from French, because I don't actually speak Portuguese, let alone the 16th century variety. I'm working with a good prose translation, and Google Translate is also turning out to be surprisingly useful, because I can put a line, or a phrase, or even a single word into Google Translate, and not only will it give me what it thinks is the most likely translation, but it also gives me a range of other possible translations. Now, obviously, I'll need to get a native Portuguese speaker, preferably an expert on Camoesh, to check my translation for accuracy, but tools like Google Translate are another example of how much help we can get from technology these days in our creative endeavours. It's much easier to do this kind of thing than it would have been even a few years ago. I mean, I'm not sure I would have dared to do this without... Yes, of course I would have dared to do it. It would just have been harder and taken longer. So three cheers for technology. Let's not forget that technology is also a downright menace. And this week, I have something to say about a problem with e-books and e-readers that you may also have encountered. So have a listen to this and see if you recognise this problem in your reading life. Reading is one of the easiest, most powerful, 
and most enjoyable stimulants to creativity. Which is why so many creatives are voracious readers. I know I am. Since I was old enough to go out on my own, I rarely left the house without a book tucked under my arm. Until a few years ago, when I bought a Kindle and then downloaded the Kindle app onto my phone and realised I could have an entire library in my pocket wherever I went. I would never be without a book again. It felt too good to be true. But after a while, I discovered a downside. Ebooks gave me practically unlimited choice. No sooner did I think of a book than I could download a preview and start reading it right away. Which was great, but I soon noticed I was starting many more books than I was finishing. Years ago, if I was stuck on a long train journey or a wet weekend away with just one book, I would stick with it, even if some bits were a bit dull or difficult, and read it to the end. But with the Kindle, as soon as I got a little bit bored with a story, or an argument got a little bit difficult to follow, I would flip to another book and start reading that instead, until I got a bit bored with that book, and then I would flip to another book, and so on and so on. Soon, reading books began to feel like browsing the web or flicking from app to app on my phone. Diverting at first, but eventually frustrating and boring. I missed the pleasure of getting lost in a good book and the satisfaction of finishing a book. One of my biggest joys in life and one of my main sources of stimulation and ideas was in danger of disappearing. Then I solved the problem by devising a simple system for reading books. My system means I always have a choice of things to read, but I never have more than three books on the go at once. It also means I'm rediscovering the pleasure of being lost in a book and finishing lots more of the books that I start. Friends and clients report similar results when I share my system with them, so I thought you might like to try it too. Here's the system. The first step is to think about the types of book you read and allocate a reading channel for each type of book. So, for example, I have three reading channels, one for poetry, one for education, and one for entertainment. In the poetry channel is, well, poetry. In the education channel is any book that I'm reading to learn something whether it's a book of literary criticism, a business book, a book on personal development or spirituality, or a handbook of Japanese grammar. In the entertainment channel is anything in prose that I'm reading for fun. It's mostly novels, biographies, and history books, with a bit of football and pop music as well. It doesn't have to be fine literature or improving in any way. Okay, that's the first step. Choose your channels. The second step is to adopt a rule that you can only read one book at a time in each channel. So right now, in my poetry channel, I'm reading Jory Graham's selected poems. In the education channel, I've got the poem, Don Patterson's book, about how poetry works. 
And in the Entertainment Channel, I'm reading Cured, Lowell Tolhurst's memoir about the early days of The Cure, which is certainly entertaining. The third step is another rule. Every time you start a new book, you have to either finish it or make a conscious decision not to finish it and take it out of your channel. And there's no shame at all in giving up on a book if you really don't want to finish it. Okay, that's it. What this system means is you always have a choice of what to read, but your choice doesn't get out of hand. I think it works because a lot of the temptation to switch books comes from not being in the right mood or not having enough mental energy for reading a certain type of book. For example, if I'm wide awake and alert, there's nothing I'd rather read than poetry. But if I'm tired, then I may not have the energy or the inclination to figure out what Geoffrey Hill or John Ashbery are talking about. So I'd rather read something less demanding and more entertaining. And my entertainment channel will always give me that option. But if I'm feeling in the mood for poetry or I'm keen to learn something, I'm generally happy to read whatever's in the poetry channel or the education one. Okay, there it is. So if you fancy trying my reading system for yourself, here are the three steps again. Firstly, choose your channels by topic. And I recommend you only have about three or four of these. Secondly, you commit to only reading one book at a time in each channel. And thirdly, within each channel, you can either finish a book or make a conscious decision not to finish it and replace it with another book in the same channel. Right, that's the system. Happy reading. And if this system works for you, let me know via the contact form for the show at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm.
anchor.fm slash free course. Christina Patterson is a writer, broadcaster, and consultant. I first came across her work at the turn of the millennium when she was director of the Poetry Society, one of the most venerable institutions in the poetry life of the UK. She went on to write a regular column at the Independent newspaper for many years about politics, society, culture, books, travel, and the arts. In 2013, she was shortlisted for the prestigious Orwell Prize for her campaign to raise standards in UK nursing, which she pursued in her column and also on the radio and television. Christina also conducted many high-profile interviews with the likes of Diana Athill, Boy George, Daniel Ratcliffe, Camille Pallier and Shane McGowan. She was also the first journalist to interview the former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown after he lost the general election in 2010. These days, Christina writes for the Sunday Times and The Guardian, and she's a regular commentator on radio and TV news programmes, including the Sky News Press Preview. I met Christina last year when I had the privilege of coaching her for a few months and she shared with me a preview copy of her first book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. This is an unusual book in its form as well as its content. It's part memoir, part collection of interviews, and part reflection on how to survive the worst that life can throw at human beings, including illness, injury, redundancy, divorce, and bereavement. I invited Christina onto the show to talk about her unusual journey as a writer and to give us an insight into what it's like to work in a high-pressure media environment. And also because reading her book, it struck me that many of the stories and lessons are particularly relevant to those of us on the creative path, where there's very little security, the highs can be spectacular, and the lows are brutal. In spite of some of the sombre subjects we touched on, this was a fun interview where Christina and I both made some interesting discoveries. When you listen to it, I'm sure you'll be as touched as I am by Christina's sincerity and passion, and also by her infectious sense of the joy of life. Not only that, you'll learn something about the redeeming power of crisps and fizzy wine. Christina, when did you start writing? Well, to be honest, I think I've been writing almost as long as I've been alive, or at least as, as long as I've been able to read and write, but um, not creatively for all that time. Uh, indeed, not creatively for all that much of that time. As a child, I wrote stories all the time and was in imaginary worlds for great chunks of my childhood. But then when I studied literature, first of all, uh, with O and A levels at school, and then with my degree in English, I think my daring, my courage to write imaginatively was knocked out of me because I, I was cowed by that sense of who am I to write anything? I've read Shakespeare, I've read Keats, I've read Tolstoy, I've got nothing whatsoever to contribute or add on that front. And 
so it took me a very, very, very long time to even think of having the courage to write creatively, really, um, even though actually all I ever wanted to do was write. And when did you pluck up that courage? Well, um, I wanted to become a journalist, but even that I gave up on really quickly. When I was at university, I went to see a careers advisor and the careers, and I said, oh, I'd love to go into journalism. And she said, it's very competitive. And I thought, oh, well, I better not try then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I didn't. And uh, I instead, uh, after doing a, a an MA in the novel, but and it was the one at the University of East Anglia where there was another whole class doing the creative writing MA. And I, of course, was not allowing myself to do creative writing. I was reading mm-hmm. other people's work. I ended up working in publishing and then I ended up working in arts admin. So I ended up becoming a handmaid to other writers, which is very was very interesting in all kinds of ways, but also, of course, somewhat frustrating because over the years I began to think, well, I'm only here to serve other writers. And some of them were not absolutely brilliant. I was very, very lucky in my years at the South Bank Centre to work with and meet some of the uh, most incredible writers of the 20th century. But I also met some pretty mediocre writers in when I was working at the Poetry Society. Not all the poets who I came across were, you know, potential Nobel Prize winners. And I suppose I felt more and more frustrated that I had not allowed myself to write creatively. What I had done was I started uh, reviewing other people's work in my mid-twenties and for Many years I did, I I reviewed fiction and nonfiction and poetry on top of full-time jobs, worked incredibly hard building up uh, a journalistic portfolio and eventually becoming a full-time journalist at the age of 39. But I still didn't allow myself to do the kind of creative stuff for the fun of it. And that was really only quite recently that I, that I did. So I think there's maybe a bit of a lesson here, isn't there? When you, when you looked at the great and the, and the so-called good of literature, you know, you, you put them like, I guess many of us do when we're young, you know, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, they're like colossi, Mm. you know, bestriding the globe. And yeah, what it sounds like, what was the turning point for you was when you saw some of these people up close and you thought, well, actually, they've got two arms and two legs and some of them are talented and some of them maybe are not. Yes. You know, I mean, are they so different to me? Yes, I think that that was part of it. And also in my, I suppose, in my late 30s, I realised that there was a very particular story that I really wanted to tell. Now, in fact, I still haven't written the version, the main version of that story. And I, I hope to. I've I've touched on it in my in my current book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. And in fact I've cannibalized little bits of a version of that. I've done several versions of that over the years. But I think yes, it was it was partly that feeling of the years are running out and I am allowing myself to be cowed here. I'm allowed my, allowing myself to be cowed into not doing the thing I want to do more than anything else, which is clearly crazy. So I think in the end, you just have to have some courage and take a risk. And I have to ask you, what, so what is this story that is, is partly told in this book <laughs> and that you trail? Um, well, it's the, it's the story of uh, 
of many of, of you know a number of intertwined things but a very central strand was my adolescence as a born again Christian when I was 14 I went to a youth club in order to meet boys and um, the youth club unfortunately was attached to a Baptist church and I became a raving born again fundamentalist until my mid-20s and that had um, quite a, a big and lasting impact on my life so I started um, a version of that and uh, I still want to write it will have to be a different version at some point. But the book I've written has uh, elements of my my childhood and past woven through it, but not very much, actually, because it's I'd say it's sort of at least as focused on other people, probably more focused on other people as it is on on me and my own experiences. But I think very often it's that sense that we do have a story to tell that uh, that is the kind of the breakthrough, really, in terms of allowing ourselves to step over from the critical or reporting um, mode of our work into the actual sort of personal and creative mode. I mean, which is not to say that the rest of journalism isn't creative. I mean, for me, I have loved being a journalist. It's It feels like my vocation. I, I don't massively distinguish between writing journalism and writing books in some ways because I think writing is writing and the only question is whether you're any good and and how well you do it but of course there is a a difference in writing something long and writing something short and also a difference in writing something that you are burning to say rather than writing for someone who is telling you essentially what to write about. And so you haven't told the story of being born again Christian but do you think it's changed the kind of writer that you are do you think you would have been a different writer if you hadn't gone on that journey that's a very interesting question Mark and I have never even considered that so uh, what an interesting question well I think apart from anything else I think it gave me an intense knowledge of the Bible which probably did have an impact on my writing mm. and I think anybody who wants to write actually should read the Bible because it's such a central work of literature, and certainly the uh, the St James version, the King James version, sorry, um, has had such a profound effect on English poetry. It, you can't really imagine English poetry without it. And I and I've literally never thought of this before, but I do use rhetorical repetition quite a lot in my prose to the point where uh, the copy editor of my book once or twice said, "Are you sure you want to repeat this?" And my answer each time was. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a kind of hallmark of my prose. It's a hallmark of my column. And I do mm. use it in my writing. I, I like those echoes. I like the way that sort of rolls along, rolls on the tongue. So I think, I think that, uh, yeah, I think the Bible did have a big impact on my writing. And I never, ever thought of that until this particular moment. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm reminded even even the arch atheist Philip Larkin read the King James Bible from cover to cover because mm. he said it was absolutely beautiful. And you know, for the exact reason that you've said is such an influence on the language. Well, you don't get you don't get better than Larkin, really, do you? And funnily enough, a, an extract from um, a short a few lines from one of his poems is the uh, epigraph to my book. Well, of course, if you want to know which Larkin poem is quoted in Christina's book, you'll need to read it all the way to the end. <laughs> <laughs> there are several Larkin quotes, actually, including at the very end. So there's a hook. <laughs> and so in your journalism, and this comes across very strongly, you, you, I can really feel this burning desire to say something. You really do believe in what you're saying. And I get the sense you're out to, to change the world in some way, or at least to get people to think differently, mm. which is maybe the start mm. of that. 
would it be going too far to suggest that your your column was a kind of pulpit or am I stretching the, the analogy a bit too far? No, absolutely not. Again, you've completely hit the nail on the head. It, it, it was a pulpit. And I think to go back to your previous question, I think, and again, I'd never thought of that, which is why it's such an interesting question. I think an element of that evangelical zeal has remained with me, even though I haven't believed in any kind of a God for a very long time. And I don't even know exactly what my evangelical zeal is about, except except that it's definitely there. And I am someone who I believe in passion. Obviously, I believe in the intellect as well. So uh, too much passion and you end up with just opinions with no uh, justification or rationale and um, too much intellect and you end up with, uh, with writing that is dull, actually. And I think any writer should aim to make people think and move them. For me, I have kind of two aims as a writer, and one is to make people feel things, and the other is to make people use their brains. And um, and that was absolutely what I tried to do in all my years as a columnist. And you are, you are at twice or once a week, I had a column twice a week for many years, you are walking up to the steps on a little stone pulpit in a country church and thundering forth. <laughs> the, the difference, the difference in my case, although this might also apply to some vicars if one wants to stretch the analogy, is that I usually didn't know where I was going to end up. And I, I would get emails from people saying, oh, you know, what I really like about your column is I never know where it's going to lead. And and I would say, well, I don't either, actually, because I, I think writing ought to be a process of discovery. And if you know where you're going from the start, it's probably going to lack a certain energy that it that it would otherwise have. So Mimi, Mima Calvati, who I know is a good friend of yours, Christina, she mm. was on last season talking about this same idea in relation to poetry. You know, we ended up oh, calling the interview poetry as discovery because of that, you know, not knowing that's what making the writing fun. But I must admit, I hadn't thought journalism could work that way too. Could you elaborate on that? I mean, for starters, how much freedom did you have to write what you wanted? And then where did you go from there? Yes. Well, in terms of columns, once you have your... I was very lucky as a columnist. I mean, everything you write as a journalist, you have to get cleared with an editor. So uh, you can't just literally fill up a, a page with absolutely anything. But certainly for a time when I had the lead slot in the independent once a week during the week and I had a, a full page on a Saturday in the news pages. I had a pretty free reign. Now that did have to uh, be related to the news so the weekday column had to be about a, a very big item in the news that day, um, ideally the main item in the news that day and that led to a, a certain amount of stress because um, I'd be kind of waking up almost in a cold sweat listening to the Today programme, working out what the main item was, trying to think of a fresh angle or fresh argument on that, um, then having to pitch a, a kind of some thoughts about what that argument might be to the comment editor would then go into conference and have get that idea cleared by the editor of the paper. Sometimes they would say, no, we're not having that. And then you'd be back to square one at 11 o'clock and you would still have to write 1150 words by 3 p.m. So nobody could say it was a low stress enterprise. But once I had agreed the subject with the editor and agreed of sort of rough slant on it and again to go back to poetry I'm I'm a big fan of Emily Dickinson and her uh, idea of tell the truth but tell it slant mm-hmm. what I what I always 
or very often tried to do was to kind of take a surprising angle on something and sometimes almost a kind of Martian view to take a step back and take first principles in relation to it. So you're trying not to just say the same stuff that everyone else says. You're trying to think about it a bit differently. And from that point of view, in terms of the thinking, I was free to think about a subject in any way I liked and free to structure and write the thing in a way I liked. But obviously an editor has to then say, you know, yes, this is good. And I was very lucky. I had very little changed in anything I wrote in my years at The Independent. And I think I think that was a great, a quite an unusual privilege. I think I had a freer reign than many journalists do have. I, I've written for other papers since leaving The Independent. And I mean, I, I don't have a column on another paper, but it's not, certainly it's, it's, there are greater constraints and closer editorial scrutiny, I would say. But I had a fair degree of freedom and that's what I absolutely loved about it was that essentially I could write in my own voice about what interested me. And that's uh, one of the reasons I was so heartbroken when, when I lost my column. And I mean, you had a pretty big microphone at The Independent. What, mm. what was it like having all those people reading every week and paying attention to your voice? Well, it was great, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very, very stressful. I, I, would, I would be trying to keep up with the news pretty much all the time. I would go to bed, you know, thinking about the news, listening to the midnight news, uh, having watched Newsnight. I'd spend hours a day reading the papers. I, as I say, on de- on column days, I would wake up in a, in a, you know, a bit of a cold sweat. So it was very stressful. And you don't always have particularly interesting things to say about something that's popped up that morning. And that is not a nice feeling. And you do know that whatever you write is going to have your name and photo of you next to it. And sometimes I'd get emails from people saying things like, if you'd done your research, Ms. Patterson, and I feel like saying, research, are you crazy? What world? You know, I'm not, I'm not Seneca. I'm not sitting in a library. You know, I'm a journalist. You don't have time to do research. Maybe you do on other papers, but and I certainly did research for my interviews. And I certainly, if I'm doing book reviews, which I still do, you have to obviously read the book. But um, if you're writing a column, you really don't have much time to do research. So that is very high stress. And often the stress is extremely unpleasant. But the the good side of that is you do have a, a readership. And I would get masses of emails from people Who's, who said how much they valued what I did and sometimes from blokes in Starbucks saying, you know, your column made me cry. And oh. and um, I know, and that would mean a huge amount to me, actually. And I've, I've had similar responses to the book. I've had emails from blokes saying, you know, the first time in my life I stayed up all night to read your book. And, and that means the world to me. And interestingly, that you mentioned Mimi Calvati, who, as you say, is a very dear friend. She's also in the book. I've interviewed her in the book. And she, many years ago, gave me a piece of advice that I think is one of the best pieces of advice I've ever had about writing. She said, the reader will feel what you feel when you're writing it. And I have always found that to be true. If I feel as though, if, if I feel profoundly moved when I'm writing something, I, I have learned enough about my craft to know that the person reading it is going to be moved as well. Yeah. Or if I'm laughing when I'm writing it, I know that the person reading it is very likely to be laughing. And if I'm finding it a bit of a bore, to be honest, horrifyingly, the person reading it is probably also you know, not finding it the most scintillating thing they've ever read. Because when you have learned your craft, there is a kind of 
part of that craft is that I think about unblocking the path between what's in your head and heart and the reader and your skill is in getting the right words in the right order in order to have that sort of um, direct line. And and that's and it's interesting because you you asked me whether my experience of evangelical Christianity changed my writing and I've tried to answer that question but certainly I was very ill um some years ago I had breast cancer for the second time and after I went back to work after a a very big operation I had three months off because it was a very big operation I noticed that I needed suddenly needed to use more words to fill the column gap than I had before and more words than the other columnists sometimes as much as a hundred more words than the other columnists as many as a hundred more words and it's a very strange this and I can't really explain it I can only guess that during that time when I thought I wasn't sure if I was going to make it something happened that clarified something either in my head or my heart and I became less patient with polysyllables. I wanted to write the shortest words. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I do generally try to write short words. And I often find that when I'm given a word length by a paper, I have to write slightly more than other people would write because I have learned that for me anyway, the shorter words are more powerful. If the prose is plainer, it will have more of an effect on the reader than if you're, it's full of sort of flourishes. And it's, it's all about deceptive simplicity, really, because it's actually, in my experience, harder to write with uh, short, plain words than with the long ones, particularly if you've read a lot, because you've got the long ones swilling around in your head all the time. But it is about that deceptive simplicity. And increasingly, the artists and writers I really admire are the ones who achieve something like that. If you think of Matisse's cutouts, for example, mm. he he produced those when he was in a wheelchair, having had cancer, and he couldn't stand up to paint anymore. And I, when I saw the Matisse exhibition at, at the Tate, I just cried. I just found those pictures so incredibly powerful and moving. And that was because he had a lifetime of work behind him of developing his craft, which he had reduced to its essence. So I'm I'm very interested in how you simplify, really. That's a beautiful example. I saw that show, and one of the images that really stayed with me was a photo of him, an old man in a wheelchair with with scissors and coloured paper, mm, and it looked yeah. just like my kids. Must exactly, exactly. And I thought to have that simplicity or that childlike quality. And yet mm. he could do all the fancy stuff. Exactly, but yeah. He, that's not what he wanted. And I love mm. that phrase of yours, deceptive simplicity. I mean, you you could apply that to Larkin's poetry, certainly. Absolutely, absolutely. But I think you have to be quite a sophisticated reader to appreciate the deception and the simplicity. And I think unsophisticated readers sometimes think, um, don't understand the complexity of, of the whole thing. I did hear from... I'd better not name any names, but I did hear that someone very senior knew at The Independent uh, 
said to someone else that he thought my writing was like a primary school teacher's and he didn't mean it as a compliment and this person had a financial background it was, it was a business journalist and I thought I mean obviously I wasn't there I couldn't say anything but I thought you don't understand it actually you don't you, yeah. you literally yeah. don't understand anything about writing because it's so tempting to maybe particularly when the pressure's on to reach for the the long highfalutin words that can make us sound clever yeah and um, maybe that's why Johnson said, you know, whenever he was talking about editing, he said, whenever you come to a particularly fine passage in your own writing, strike it out. I know, I know. <laughs> Murder your darlings, nightmare, nightmare. Yeah. But yes, yes. So coming, I, I want to c- come back to this. You talked about having the direct line from you to the, the readers. Mm. And that comes through in your, the diction, the deceptive simplicity. Can you maybe think of one or two issues where you really felt that you'd made that connection with your audience as a columnist? Uh, Certainly in relation to writing about the NHS and nursing. I I had some very bad experiences of nursing, unfortunately. And when I had my mastectomy and reconstruction, it was in a very good hospital. And I'd had very bad experience before then, but I thought that the nursing would be good and unfortunately it was absolutely terrible and I emerged from hospital almost more traumatized by the nursing than the operation Mm. and I made a vow when I was on my hospital bed that when I came out I would try to do something about it and of course when I did finally go back to work the last thing I wanted to do was you know just do bloody campaigning but I thought Mm. I did make that promise and I have to do it so over the course of um, about the next year, I spoke to the editor. I talked to lots of people, people in uh, to nurses, doctors, politicians, and of course, patients to find out what exactly was happening in nursing, why so many people were having terrible experiences. Because when I had written about my own experiences, I'd got very, very, initially in columns, I'd got incredible responses. And um, I also d- made a radio programme um, it was called Forethought on Radio 4, and it was a 15-minute programme that was meant to be a sort of a mix of storytelling and thinking. And I gave that at the RSA, the Royal Society of the Arts, and uh, it was recorded live. It was very, very nerve-wracking. And I was very... I'd never spoken publicly about my mastectomy before. It was relatively recent, and I, I was kind of mortified as well. Hmm. But... Um, the programme went out and, and also mortifyingly, it was very heavily previewed on Radio 4. So people kept telling me they would hear my voice. For a, it was previewed for weeks before it came out and then it did come out. And then I had an incredible response, emails from readers and letters from readers all around the country saying that they had had similar experiences. And in fact, that programme, I gather, is still quite widely used as a teaching tool in the NHS. Really? So the so columns, I, I wrote about that and that program and also I made a little film for the one show on the day the Francis report came out a five minute film about the state of contemporary nursing which produced a very powerful response and then out of that I did this investigation that resulted in um a week's it was over six days in the independent every day for six days and that had an absolutely extraordinary response and was shortlisted for the Orwell prize which is um the main political journalism prize in the country ironically enough I was um shortlisted for the prize very shortly after I was fired from the independent which was very embarrassing <laughs> all around so I had to contact the organizers and say uh, I think you're gonna have to change my biog note to something like Christina Patterson is now freelance because um I didn't have a job and um and the I imagine 
Lounge and the Independent were a bit were, were a bit embarrassed about it because they didn't even mention it in the paper um, until I made a fuss, and then they did uh, in a kind. They sort of you know rather actually kind of um, you know sort of well put a little announcement in which they really didn't want to do, but. Um, so I think that that's probably the thing I've done in my journalism, which has had the biggest impact. And wow, is that an example of what you were saying about if you feel something, they will feel it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I know that this is very much, you know, that kind of personal story is really at the heart of the book. But before we get on to that, because I, I think it's relevant as well, you, as well as your column, you also conducted interviews with some seriously high powered people. Mm. And how was that? <laughs> hard work, Mark. It was very, very <laughs> hard work. I, I I started off at the Independent as deputy literary editor, and I had in fact been running an organisation called the Poetry Society, which I loved. I mean, it was a you know, dream job, and you know, I was the boss. What's not to like? And I had lovely colleagues, and we I organised things like poetry reading groups where we'd sit around drinking margaritas and reading poetry, and it was it was fabulous. It was a, it really was a dream job. And then I was approached, I'd kind of given up on getting a job in journalism. I was still reviewing, but I thought I'm never going to be able to get an actual job in journalism. And then I was approached by um, the literary editor of The Independent. He said his deputy was leaving and did I want to apply for the job? And I was sort of agonised because I thought, well, I've got a lovely job. Why would I give this up to kind of open jiffy bags and make cups of tea? Mm -hmm. but, um, but I also thought if I want to work on a national paper, then this is it. This is my chance. So I did apply for the job and I did get it. And I gave up the lovely job at the Poetry Society. And I part of my job um, was interviewing writers. So for many years, I interviewed writers. And and that was fascinating. People like Kazuo Ishiguro, um, Philip Pullman, Jacqueline Wilson, um, all kinds of poets. And so, yes, it was fascinating and very, very hard work because... I'm the kind of person, you know, I'm not going to, and you can't do it anyway. You can't just read their Wikipedia entry and then rock up and ask a few random questions. <laughs> I would, I would you know, plough through their entire oeuvre. I interviewed Doris Lessing. I don't know how many books Doris Lessing has written, but it's certainly not two. You know? yeah. So, so yeah. it was very, very hard work. And certainly when people say to me, oh, I want to be a journalist, which now is a whole different proposition because there are such radical changes in the industry, I do say, well, be prepared to work very, very hard because for many, many, many years, I worked nearly all the time. I worked evenings, I worked weekends. I rarely had a day off, even at a weekend, because I was always reading for my next interview or catching up with the papers or meeting a deadline. Um, so it was fascinating. And I, I was very, very privileged to to meet those people. And it kind of culminated for me. And um, when I was, uh, I, I left the uh, books desk and became, um, worked on the comment desk for a bit. And then I became a full-time writer. And my job was essentially writing columns and doing interviews. And uh, shortly after he left office, lost the election, Gordon Brown agreed to do one interview for a national paper. He agreed to do it for The Independent because he knew the editor a bit. And I was picked to do that interview. And I went up to Kakodi, his then constituency, and spent a day with him. And that was the most fascinating thing I've ever done. He's such a fascinating man. And I wrote that up and it was on the front page of the paper and it was mentioned on the 10 o'clock news and 
And in fact, somebody wrote to me and said, this is what journalism is for. And I say in my book, you know, I didn't know if it's what journalism was for, but I did feel it was what I was for. I remember when I was writing that interview, actually thinking, and it sounds like a dramatic thing to say, but thinking, this is what I'm here for. You know, this is why I'm alive, which is one of the reasons it was so absolutely devastating to lose my job. And we must, that, that interview, the Gordon Brown one, is, is online, isn't it? We, it we is, should, yes. We should link yes. to that. It's a really fascinating portrait. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. So you went from there to a book full of interviews. Yes. Or a book yes. based on interviews. How did well, this come about? it was not a seamless path, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and the book the book starts with uh the scene in which uh, the scene the the moment in my life in which I had this horrendous conversation and I it will be a scene when they do the movie. <laughs> and I end up shouting at the editor of the Independent after being told that he wants to freshen the pages up. And I walk out of the office uh for the and for the first time for the last time after ten years and nobody even looked up. And that was that. That was my career at The Independent down the plug hole. At the time, I felt it was my career as a journalist down the plug hole. And that, that's not entirely true. But I did sort of decide that I, journalism was not going to be the centre of my life because I knew I wasn't going to ever have a job as in journalism as good as the one I had. I was in a very, very privileged position at that point of basically writing columns for a living and um and mm. hardly anyone gets that now and freelance journalism is not paid particularly well anymore in fact rates have been slashed in the last 20 years and I wasn't a freelance I mean the, the freelance journalism I did before I did on top of full-time jobs so um anyone who wants to be a freelance journalist prepare for uh, penury basically um or be very 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 determined and very hard working and uh, and write stuff every day which um i can't be bothered to do now i can't be bothered <laughs> to do the pitching but uh, um so yeah so there i was sort of cast out into the wilderness thinking i'm 49 i've done nothing all my life except work i mean that's not entirely true but i i wasn't married i didn't have a family i had um i'd had in in some ways rather a tough time i'd my sister had died my father had died i'd had breast cancer and then had breast cancer again and what had kept me going through all that time was my work and my career and even though like many writers and journalists i have a kind of tendency to feel like a failure all the time which by the way i also think is a kind of prerequisite for doing a half decent job in your field but moving on from that <laughs> I, I completely agree i have this conversation several times a week with clients i say look you do realize this is normal for a yes. <laughs> creative high achiever Exactly. And I think the problem actually is that if you don't think that you're probably not good enough is the truth of it. <laughs> but, um, but it's but it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And when I lost my job and my career, I thought, oh, wow, I really am a failure. Now I'm not making it up anymore. I really, really am a failure. Mm. And so I didn't know how to earn a living. But um, I also just kind of didn't know what to do. And I decided that I would use my journalistic skills to essentially ask the question, what the hell do you do when your life falls apart? I mean, it was a question I'd had reason to ask quite a few times in my life. But weirdly, it wasn't cancer or even bereavement that made me feel most desperate in my life, awful though those things were. It was that sense of I've now lost my very identity and my vocation and the core of who I am. And so I... 
I had an agent and I we we talked about this idea together and I decided to talk to lots of people in lots of different situations about how they had coped when life had gone wrong and to weave those interviews together with my own story following on from my uh, dramatic departure from the independent over a period of two years now I would love to say oh yes and then there was this very happy ending because I wrote the book in you know two weeks and uh, and it was all very easy and of course it wasn't I was sort of running around trying to cobble together uh, a living by doing lots of different things and lurching from one 200 quid piece of journalism to another. I mean, I was also doing some quite good journalism. I wrote for the Sunday Times magazine. I started writing for the Sunday Times magazine, which is, of course, much better paid than that. But it's still that the work I was doing involved an awful lot of interviews and you get paid by the word. So I did big pieces on things like the prevent strategy or intergenerational unemployment or teenage pregnancy and they were all fascinating to research but but they took months and you certainly don't get paid for your time so um I was very 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 busy just trying to earn a living and it's if you want to get a book published it's not an easy thing and if you write something on spec you take a huge risk and that I didn't have the time to write something on spec because I had to pay my bills. And if you're freelance and you're trying to pay your bills, and particularly if you're unexpectedly freelance and trying to pay your bills, you're not going to carve out six hours a day to write for fun. You, For a start, you probably are in too much of an anxious state about where the next piece of work is coming from. So it took me a long time, about 18 months before I really allowed myself to sit down and think about how I was going to actually structure this book and put it together. And there was a lot of toing and froing with my agent before we got to the point where he thought that the proposal was ready to send out. And I didn't get an instant offer. Um, I'm very happy with how things ended up. I love my publisher. I love my editor. And uh, and the publication's gone pretty well. But it I would say it all took much, much longer than I thought it would. And actually the writing of the book was weirdly the easiest part of it. The, the all the it's all the kind of the hoops you have to leap through and uh, to use it to mix my metaphors madly, the ducks you have to line up, which <laughs> are the difficult things. And for me, doing the interviews and uh, transcribing them and then actually writing the thing was relatively easy. But I mean, the thing that strikes me, because it's, it's quite an unusual structure to the book, which mm. I think is beautifully done, is, is your Thank story you. interwoven with all these other stories going in and out and some of them reappear later on. Mm. People share the most extraordinary things with you. Yes, they, they really do. What what was the process like of going and, and talking to these people and having these conversations? It was it was amazing. I, I mean, many of them were known to me already. Quite a few of them are good friends because I didn't want to treat this as a kind of abstract intellectual project. Right. People can talk theoretically about how they've got through this, that and the other, but you only really know how they've got through it when you know them quite well. So as 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 I said, Mimi Kalbati is one of the people who I've known for years and admire hugely and has been through huge things in her personal life. She has one, a son with schizophrenia and a daughter with an incurable autoimmune disease. And uh, so I talked to her, I talked to two friends of my parents who I actually saw on Sunday, went round for tea, and they have lost not one son, 
but two sons. I lost a son when he was a toddler and another son when he was in his late 20s. I talked to my friend Rob. His, he's called Winston in the book. He's an ex-boyfriend, actually. I met him at um, a rice and peas stall at the Elephant and Castle 20 years ago. And we only went out for a while, but we've been very good friends for all that time. And he told me about breaking vertebrae, vertebrae in his spine, not once, not twice, but three times. Oh. And um, one of those included um, falling off a roof when he was in a squat and smashing through a glass ceiling, but not in the way he's black, not in the way that they tell black people to, but a literal glass ceiling and oh. landing on um, a purple coffin uh, in which he kept his drug, his uh, drug kit, his uh, drum kit. <laughs> and, um, and he broke his spine then and was told he wouldn't be able to walk again and amazingly did. So, and I've known him for 20 years. I, I'm, I took him down the road to the, to the pub and uh, he told me this and I was kind of open mouthed and I thought, I never knew this about you before. So I had some really extraordinary moments when I learned things from people I've known for a long time that I didn't know before. And then also I, people opened up to me in an amazing way. Frida Hughes, who I've known for slightly for a little for probably about 15 years she is of course the daughter of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes she very very kindly agreed to talk to me about her experience of grief and she certainly knows a thing or two about grief as the daughter of one of the most famous uh, suicides of the 20th century um obviously Sylvia Plath uh, killed herself when uh, when Frida was I think two and um and then her her father died, Ted Hughes, when uh, she was in her thirties. We worked out that our our fathers died both of cancer. We were both uh, when they were the same age, and we were the same age. And um, she developed uh, she had developed ME, and she knows a lot about illness, really really crippling ME. And then her brother committed suicide, and she talked about all of this incredibly openly. And she even told me about that she remembered being in the car when she and her brother Nicholas were picked up from the flat in Primrose Hill where Sylvia Plath killed herself. She remembers being in the back of the car and she remembers Ted Hughes and his sister in the front of the car, but she was so traumatised she didn't actually recognise. I mean, it's an astonishing story. She She basically didn't... She thought she was adopted. She she was so traumatised that for years she thought she was adopted and she didn't think Ted Hughes was her real father. And I I mean, I had goose flesh when she told me that. So there are some, for me, quite amazing revelations in the book and um, just moments of unbelievable courage and humour. I mean, I, I, I think people are, most of the people, as I say in the book, are people I know and many of them are very good friends and I, I didn't pick them as my friends because they're brave resilient extraordinary people I picked them as my friends because I really like them and they make me laugh so you know I hope there are some laughs in the book as well and they opened up to me a because they're my friends and b because even though journalism isn't very highly valued in the marketplace nowadays as a skill I think you know obviously if you interview lots of people you do acquire some skills and the main skill you need to be a good interviewer is em empathy and the ability to build rapport and put people at their ease and if you didn't do that you wouldn't get people to open up and I do know how to make people open up. Well you know having read the book I can absolutely confirm that it's a really extraordinary read but it's it's not just harrowing I mean I, I do want to say that it's 
there's an incredible depth of compassion, I think, in your writing. And also in the stories of a lot of the stories that you draw out of people and that you relate from yourself, a lot of it at the core is people helping each other. Yes. And being there for each other. Well, that's right. And thank you for your very kind words about the book. Yes, I think I do say uh, towards the end that my parents taught me that the most important thing in life was to be kind. And I do believe that. I think the most important thing in life is to be kind. And I think those of us who put our work, whether it's artistic and creative work or work that might be deemed less creative, absolutely at the heart of our lives, do need to remember that, of course, achievement matters and our own achievements matter. We all want to make our mark in the world and feel that we've used our brains to actually do something and yeah get something done but I do think and I think the book in a way it's a central message of the book actually I do think that the most important thing is your character the most important thing is your heart and the most important thing is how you behave to other people and that's how I was brought up and I still absolutely believe that and I think without compassion the world is dead really we, we're going through in, in my view, really horrendous times in the West. I think Donald Trump's election as president of the United States is the worst thing that has happened in my lifetime. And I don't think it's funny. I, I don't find anything funny about it. I think the fact that he could last year after the Charlottesville marches literally equate neo-Nazis and white supremacists with people who are protesting against racism is a real nadir in my lifetime. I think there are many reasons at the moment to wake up in the morning and feel profoundly depressed about the world. And um, and I'm afraid I also think, Bre- I think Brexit is in a not dissimilar category. I, I don't, I, I'm, you know, believe it's a mistake. I don't blame people who voted for Brexit. I think that our politicians lied to us. And I think it's a very, very serious thing to lie to people. And there are plenty of reasons to feel depressed, actually. But I think the reasons to be cheerful are that human beings can be profoundly lovely and kind and produce beautiful things and beautiful art and work very well together and love each other. And these are, for me, the things that make life worth living. And also there are some wonderful moments of joy and celebration in the book. In fact, one of my favourite passages is kind of a a hymn to crisps and fizzy wine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm a very big fan of crisps. I had a boyfriend once who called me Crispina. And um, (laughs) and, uh, it's funny because now, because crisps and particularly kettle chips, even though I'm not an ambassador for kettle chips and I ought to be. um, Ought to be. (laughs) I really ought to be. uh, They are very widely mentioned in the book. And now, wherever I go, people sort of offer me, if they've read the book, you know, they offer me kettle chips. And and I'm afraid, you know, literally every every morning, the ple- every not every morning probably, but every evening, the pleasure is, is fresh. I was at the Cheltenham Literary Festival last night doing an event. And even then I was, you know, chomping down a bag before I went on stage. I... I mean, I'm not saying that they're a good thing. In fact, they're apparently not particularly good for you. Who knew? But, but I do. But I I don't know how much harm they can do. And I think we all have things in life that give us pleasure. I have particular joys in my life every day. My my darling mother, who uh, was Swedish, 
brought me up to think that every time you have a cup of coffee, you should have a little cake. And I absolutely believe that. I'm never <laughs> really entirely happy with a cup of coffee where there isn't a little sweet thing with it. And and for me, every day, the pleasure of coffee and cake, the pleasure of a lovely glass of Sauvignon or Prosecco or, or Viognier and some crisps, these things are fresh joys every day. And as are flowers, as is music, as is friendship. And I think I think we underestimate the importance of joy in our life, actually. And I I, I think I, I quote um I think it's Matisse in the book, who says um something like, There is always beauty for those who are prepared to see it. I think I've misquoted it. No, there are always flowers for those who can see them. And I think that's right, which is not, I don't mean that in a kind of power of positive thinking, oh, you know, just be cheerful and it's all fine way. But I do think there is an element of choice in how we spend our days, which of course is how we spend our lives. And if we don't see the joy or relish the pleasures, then we are depriving ourselves of a huge dimension of joy. So I think one of the other central messages about, of the book is indeed about joy. And I love the fact you call it the art of not falling apart, because there's so many books these days that are, are so eager to brandish their scientific credentials mm. and say, this is all based on research. And mm. I interviewed all the top scientists, and this is what the data tells us. Why, why did you go for the art? Well, yes, the, the whole smart thinking, which I always want to call smart ass thinking category, <laughs> which, um, which, you know, annoyingly sells extremely well and they get snapped up by the business world. And then those people end up on kind of motivational speaking tours, being paid vast amounts of money to, to you know, spell out the absolute bleeding obvious in some kind of you know, PowerPoint <laughs> TED Talk with data type thing. With data, exactly. Well, I don't think, I think very little in life comes down to bullet points and PowerPoint presentations. And certainly the central question of human existence, which is we are born, we suffer, we die. Um, you know, if, if anyone can get that down to a, a series of bullet points, well, well done them. <laughs> <laughs> the whole of art and literature is essentially grappling with that issue and half failing. But uh, as Beckett said, uh, failing slightly better in some cases than others and it is an art life is an art if only someone could tell you how to live your life I'm still every day I'm still kind of thinking oh which which expert can I ask today about how to live my life <laughs> and unfortunately I mean I, I say in the book I've got a whole secret shelf of self-help books in my study behind the filing cabinet, which essentially I used to read as kind of fantasy fiction, because at some level, I absolutely <laughs> know that they're a complete waste of time. But at another level, I, I like sitting down with a nice glass of wine and having, you know, being kind of taken into this this world of, of exclamation marks and perky affirmations to think that there is a possibility of a really simple world where everything is kind of spelt out for you and you just do the following steps and everything will be fine. And I also say in the book that at many points of my life, if there'd been a book called something like, I feel so awful, I don't know what to do, then I would have absolutely snapped it up. And, <laughs> and um, I think in a way this book is, if I I feel so awful, I don't know what to do. But but I wanted to be, A, quite not quite as negative as that in the title, because after all, you have got to pe get people to buy it. But um, also I did feel it was important to emphasise that 
it's an art. Now, there are a lot of books now with the word art in the title. And, you know, it's fine art of not giving over. I don't know if I'm allowed to use the word, but the word that begins with F. They find art. Well, you, you can, as, as, as long as it's artistically justified. You. The art of not giving a fuck, which, you know, what the, who, who the fuck knows what that's about. But it's, you know, it's basically because people find the word fuck funny. And it kind of is funny, but it also <laughs> isn't saying very much, really. Uh, and I very much doubt that it's Tolstoy or Keats. I think... Um, Wisdom, knowledge, expertise, um, but most of all wisdom, how can that be anything other than art? It's a multi-layered process that we add to the layers of every day. And that's why I that's why the structure of the book is in some ways quite uh unconventional. I hope it's quite easy to read, but it's not a straightforward structure in that I do weave, I introduce people in, it's a three-part structure, I introduce people in the first part and then mostly return to them in the second part and I weave together those stories and my story and different themes. Um, because I, what I wanted the reader to feel at the end of it was that they'd had an experience, an, an artistic experience of a kind where the layers build up and where such knowledge as they feel they've acquired by the end is a cumulative thing because in my experience that's how we learn and how we feel things by actually being moved and feeling that you've been taken on a journey <laughs> I don't mean that in a kind of Californian journey way but on an artistic journey oh, well, we absolutely do I mean the structure of the book again I don't it's quite mesmerizing. I mean that literally. I used to be a professional hypnotist, so oh. I can assure you it literally is. That's a very interesting thing to say. Goodness, what do you mean by that? Well, I used to be a hypnotherapist. That yes. was my original. Yes, training. I know. Yes. And so storytelling, and particularly embedding stories inside stories inside stories, mm. is quite, if you notice a lot of film and TV, and quite often children's TV uses the technique. So it literally, it takes you very deep into the world and worlds of the book. How interesting. I had no idea that that was a technique in, in hypnosis or hypnotherapy. That's fascinating. So, so this book will take you deeper than other books. <laughs> no, it won't take you deeper than other books. But, <laughs> but I hope it will take people on some kind of satisfying journey. So final question about the book. Obviously, we're both artists, we're writers, and most people listening to this will be artists or creatives mm. of some kind. It's a book I really think anyone can relate to, but are there any of the, the lessons or stories in the book that you think are particularly resonant and relevant to those of us on the creative path? Mm. Well, there's I've already mentioned Mimi Calvati, and one of the things she talks about is difficulty, really. I think it's difficult, right? I don't, I don't even, I mean, for me, poetry is kind of the king of the art forms, but I haven't even tried because I don't think I would be any good. And uh, obviously that's not a particularly helpful attitude to have, but poetry, good poetry is really, really, really difficult. In fact, good art of any kind is really, really, really difficult. And I suppose the lesson I I think one would get from her. I mean, she talk, she's talking more about her life than her poetry, but I think the lessons apply to both, is that it's never easy. And there's a, an artist called Paul Brandford who I interview in the book and who talks about going to look at paintings at the National Gallery hundreds of times. He will literally go back and look at the same painting and look at the layers and look at the brushstrokes. And 
he talks about it as a journey he will never get to the end of. I think art is a journey you will never get to the end of. And I think you have to expect it to be difficult and you have to enjoy that difficulty. And I mean, sometimes when I'm writing, I had to write a couple of things last week and I found both of them agonising. And I was thinking, why do I think I like writing when this is so unbelievably unpleasant? (laughs) (laughs) But, But I think that's the deal. It's, you know, it's a kind of weird, complicated love hate relationship where you love having written and there are points in the writing where you love it, but there are points where you absolutely hate it. And yeah. you need to hate it to get into the point where you where you have what um, Mikhail Mishkin, I can never pronounce his name, um, Mihaly Mihaly, I think his name is something like that. He talks Chichen about Mihaly, well like done, that. yes, and he talks about the whole concept of flow. Yes. In my experience, very, very difficult to get to that point because you've got so many bloody hurdles to leap over first. But I think, I think. If you want the creative life, you will not have an easy life. Don't expect it to be easy. Expect it to be really hard. Expect there to be lots of rejection. Expect to have to work extremely hard. Expect to go to bed most nights feeling dissatisfied with yourself and what you've done and feel like a failure, Um, which doesn't sound like a particularly cheery lot. But, you know, you don't do it if you don't really, really want to do it. And and that's what it's like. And if you don't feel those things, my guess would be that you're probably quite mediocre. But who knows? You might be very, very lucky and a sunny personality and go to bed thinking, I did great today and produced really good stuff. In which case, I've never come across anything like you, but who knows? Anyone like you, but who knows? I think most of us listening to this are, are familiar with the challenge you're describing, <laughs> Christina. And we're up for it anyway. You know, it's like that probably apocryphal story about Shackleton advertising for men wanted for polar expedition, you know, low pay, <laughs> terrible conditions, chances of death high, and then apparently he was inundated because everybody wanted to go. So, <laughs> Yes, I mean, the, the theory of it, you know, you, you only imagine yourself at the top of Everest, don't you? You don't, right. you don't imagine sort of, you know, in, sort of slithering down some dark wet crag but that's also the reality but but of course you don't get the uh the joys without the uh without the struggles and you don't get the light without the darkness and that's where the whole concept of chiaroscuro comes from and bring it on right well that sounds like the perfect time for us to segue into the creative challenge with the joys and struggles so christina you know this is the point in the interview where i asked my guest to set the listener a challenge that's related to the themes that we've just been talking about and something that they can either do or or at least get started within seven days of listening to the interview. So what challenge would you like to set the listener? Well, as a a journalist and writer, it's going to have to be a journalistic or at least writing challenge. And I am going to ask you to take one issue that interests you at the moment. It could be in the news, it could be in your life, it could be absolutely anything. In my case, for example, if I were told to do this, I would probably, if I were being really honest, have to write about property porn because that's my current obsession. Um, even though uh, I know it's, you know, it sounds like a very banal subject. So if I were doing it, that's what I would choose. But it could be anything that's taking up a lot of your headspace or or just that's interesting you. And write 1200 words about it you can structure that in any way you like you could go up to 1210 words you could go down to uh 1190 words but 
no, you can't go over or above that because that's what you have to do as a journalist. You have to be very, very precise. And from that subject, you should construct something that you think will be interesting for somebody else to read that might make them smile or might make them moved or might make them think. Brilliant. Thank you. And if you publish that online, then do send us a link in the comments at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Christina. That will take you to the, the show notes for this episode. And you're very welcome to share your piece of journalism with us in the comments. And I'll, I'll happily have a look at them. I can't guarantee to give them detailed feedback on them all because I'm trying to, you know, earn a living. But, um, but I'll more than happily have a look at, a, a look at them. Brilliant. Thank you. So, Christina, the book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, of course, will be available in all good bookshops, mm-hmm. including Amazon. You have a website I do. Where should people go to connect with you and, and find out more about you and your, your writing? My website is christinapatterson.co.uk, and that's Patterson with two Ts. And the book uh, is currently a trade paperback, but it, the um, commercial paperback at eight ninety nine is coming out in January and will be even less on Amazon. And there's also an audiobook version out now. Excellent. And you're quite active on Twitter as well, aren't you? Yes, I like Twitter. It's um, I like Twitter when people are nice and when it's funny. I don't like it when people are horrible, which they often are. Well, of course, all the 21st century creatives are nice. So I think you're Queen Christina on Twitter. I'm Queen Christina with an underscore at the end, yes. Queen Christina underscore. Right. Queen Christina underscore on Twitter. And of course, I'll link to that from the show notes. Christina, thank you so much as ever. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you. And I know that people listening to this out there all over the world with their joys and struggles i'm sure will have got a lot of wisdom and um, some smiles from this as well thank you it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you you have been listening to the 21st century creative hosted by me mark mcginnis you can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned as well as all the archived episodes at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets On carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.